Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. And we got a reverend in the house who also is working for the children. He is the CEO of the Children's Defense Fund. Let me welcome Reverend Dr. Starsky Wilson to the Karen Hunter Show. Thank you so much for having me. Good to be with you, Karen. Good to be with you, Drew. Yes. Um, you picked up the baton laid down by the great Marion Wright Edelman, who uh, was doing all of the things for the children, um, which this uh, Children's Defense Fund came out of, of course, the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, and the goal was to improve federal policies concerning child welfare and public education systems. Fast forward 50 years, our education system is, to me, uh, com- in complete shambles. Our kids, this pandemic has exposed, particularly black kids in certain communities, no no internet, no follow through. They were, uh, I think they're going to be behind at least two more years when we ever get back up and running. What is the Children's Defense Fund's goal moving forward, and how are we? How do we fix those problems? Yeah, no, thank you for asking. It has absolutely been a nearly fifty-year fight uh, for America's children, particularly Black and Brown children, poor children, uh, and our vision really is about making sure that those marginalized children get to flourish. That leaders, whether they're doing whether they're in policy leadership or corporate leadership, prioritize those children's well-being, uh, and that the communities that surround those children actually have the power to ensure that they thrive. So so this is about making sure that decision-making is closer to the people who actually care about those children. It's about investing in our organizing capacity. uh, And it's about making sure that we we redouble efforts uh, to close these opportunity gaps for all of our children. So so we're excited. And just like you talk about kids being two years behind, we're excited that we're going to serve 10,000 children this summer at CDF Freedom Schools that are built on that Mississippi Freedom Summer model teaching them about their own agency while teaching them literacy, teaching them that they can make a difference in themselves, in their families, in their communities, and in the country uh, so that they can pick up the baton. Um, but uh, I don't, I don't want to lay down, I don't think Ms. Edelman's laid it down yet either, but we do want to pass it and hold it together for a while. We want to make sure that they're ready. Well, she, uh, no disrespect, but she's 81 years old, and I'm not saying it, but, you know, the biggest, I think the biggest fault of black folk for the last 50 years is not grooming the next generation and not passing that baton. Listen, um, this, this, that fight in the streets is for people with the, the knee ligaments and the, <laughs> and the bone and the lack of arthritis who can get out there and do that. <laughs> you need your elders to be there to guide. Like there's a system age old yeah. African system of how this is supposed to go. We have not followed what, what the spirit said we should. And people in their 80s still out there running in the streets, and they should not be. Just go yeah. just say it. It's just, it's not right. Yeah, I mean, there's a way that we should protect and guard each other in as much as we support and guide each other, right? So it's for me, I mean, she and I were together on Friday, and, uh, and we were talking about uh, some of the shifts that we're making uh, at the Children's Defense Fund. And so, you know, I sit with her to get the counsel of the elder, um, and then there's also, and sometimes we agree, sometimes we don't, um, but there's also the work to protect the legacy. And in order to protect legacy, you can't do things the same way. Uh, you've got the shift to find, uh, to react to the new experiences, because while we've been you know, in this work for 50 years, you know what we haven't seen in those 50 years? A pandemic, um, because the last time we saw one of those was 100 years ago. 
And so these are the kinds of shifts that we can kind of take the essence of the wisdom, but we have to implement and execute in different ways because our children find themselves in different circumstances, right? Uh, we didn't live in the moment. We did, CDF wasn't planted in a moment where a black family had 10 times less wealth than a white family. Um, and so we got to react to that racial wealth gap in a way um, that um, the previous leadership never had to. Uh, and so we've got to bring new tools to the fight. When you talk about bringing uh, new tools to the fight, uh, Dr. Dr. Wilson, I, I think about we sort of go to certain certain folks to give us a perspective on all of the noise that we hear about about children, about what we need to do. And I think of, you know, nobody better than Children's Defense Fund to think about that. The president just recently put forth his plan, his proposal, where he was talking about that they were going to cut that, you know, the proposal would cut child poverty in half using, essentially using tax credits to do that. How, one, can you talk about, is there a way to actually, will tax credits actually have that level of impact on children and the poverty levels? But one step further, poverty is a problem, but what happens, what's the impact on all the other things if we get poverty, if we decrease poverty for children, particularly Black children, right? Yeah. No, I think uh, what the president has proposed in the American Rescue Plan and what he's proposed, what he's advanced in the American Rescue Plan, what he's proposed in the American Families Plan, we support as a part of a long-term campaign that CDF has been in to end child poverty. Because we know that while uh, ending poverty doesn't immediately create well-being, Right. That poverty is a drag and a drain on educational opportunities, on access to health care, and on economic opportunities for our young people. And so this tool of the child tax credit um, is something that's been advanced. Um, basically, any child under the age uh, of uh, six, uh, you're going to be able to get a $3,000 uh, credit for children 17 and under, uh, then get, um, um, a, a, I'm sorry, it's 3600 for the younger children, 3000 for the older children. Uh, and this is going to access one of the values in the way this is done is that there are 23 million children in America who didn't get access to the previous child tax credit because their families earned too little. Right. So they actually didn't earn enough to get full access to the credit because of how it was administered. So this expands to 23 million more children. There are also 1.1 out of every seven children in America live in poverty. So you start talking about the dramatic impact of putting checks into the households starting in July. So in about six weeks, these checks will begin to will start getting cut. And you're talking about $300 per child on average, uh, receiving that in a household and doing it in a way that's not just when you file your taxes after the fact, mm -hmm. but doing so, this is another major innovation here that we will get the checks. Young people uh, will get those to their parents uh, on a monthly basis when the bills come due. So this is a significant intervention, but Drew, you make a remarkable point. Poverty, I was just having this conversation with our congressperson. I'm from, uh, I've been living in St. Louis for the last 20 years. Uh, our congressperson, Congresswoman uh, Cori Bush, uh, straight out of the movement. And we're talking about how poverty is remarkably complex. It is not just an economic indicator. It has to do with all of these other things. It is systems that keep us tied in and tied down. And so in as much as uh, this will help to lift the economic fortunes and create some stability and a ground upon which families can stand up, uh, it creates opportunity to address the other things that we've come to identify with poverty, the lack of educational opportunities, the lack of housing. And we're glad 
that the Biden proposal has other things in there um, related to housing. So affordable housing supports, funds to affordable housing trust funds and waivers. These are things that we continue to advocate about uh, and we continue to advocate in this moment to make some of the things that were common sense before a pandemic, let's just make them permanent. You know, if it didn't make sense to test which child should be eligible for free lunch during a pandemic, it didn't make sense beforehand. So let's just have universal free school lunch. I was talking to a senator the other day. The reality is we have a public education system in America where everything is free but the food. Why isn't the food free? We know the nutrition is connected um, to young people's ability to focus uh, and to learn. Um, so the food should be free as well. Um, so, so there's a lot for us to do. The child tax credit uh, extension is, is important. Uh, they've proposed extending it through 2025. I'll just tell you though, the Children's Defense Fund is not happy with that. We think it should be permanent. Yeah. I, I'll drop one last thing and I'll let it go. Um, every developed English speaking nation, the UK, Canada, um, uh, Australia, whatever it is, they have a permanent child allowance or some kind of family credit, like what we have for a year that we're proposing to extend to 2025. My question is, if we're gonna morally lead the world and talk about what other people should be doing, then shouldn't we take care of our own kids? They, they say you can judge a society by how they treat its women and children. Yes. I, I think the problem, though, Dr. Starsky uh, Wilson, who's here, of course, the uh, chair, CEO of the Children's Defense Fund, Drew McCaskill's here as well, is that America is a hypocritical nation. It is built on a mythology and on a foundation of lies. So we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal while we literally hold people in bondage, our first uh, five of seven presidents literally holding people in bondage, raping young girls, uh, you know, and, and, and so that foundation has to be reckoned with from a spiritual standpoint. Yes. From a spiritual standpoint, we can't really have these conversations because in the back of our spirit, we're like, they don't really care about these kids. Yeah. And it really is. I mean, you talk about the deep spiritual and moral realities. Um, the storytelling we have to do, um, you know, I'm, I'm a preacher and I was raised uh, and trained as a Baptist preacher, which means I tell the same story every Sunday. Um, and so we got to get better at telling the truths of our story, right? Yesterday and today, we continue as a country to visit. Today, Biden is visiting and, and, and spending time talking about the Tulsa race massacre. If we don't talk about what that was, if we don't talk about the impact, if we don't talk about the degradation of Black hospitality, then we won't recognize the fact that Conrad Hilton could have been and should have been a black man. Uh, we don't talk about the fact that when we talk about a racial wealth gap, it is deeply connected, not just to uh, white mobs, but white mobs that were uh, supported and resourced uh, with the implementation and the tools and the weapons of the state uh, to strip wealth from uh, black communities. And so if we don't do that work, then we don't know what in the traditions of the church, we don't know what, what we need to confess and ask forgiveness for. Uh, and so we, we find ourselves holding ourselves out as saviors of the world, rather than coming as sinners in need of God's grace. And if we took that posture, then we may have more of an openness to uh, those spiritual uh, uh, elements such as atonement, uh, needing to make things right with other people, 
uh, sacrifice, uh, needing to give of ourselves on behalf of others. Um, these are spiritual concepts that we would come through if we would tell our stories more clearly and more accurately. Dr. Wilson, Reverend Dr. Wilson, is the we the same we throughout your whole statement? Who's we? Who's the we? No, I, think I think there are responsible. Yeah, I think there are we. I think that there's, there is a, a we that's the same and consistent throughout my statements. Um, now, the reactions to the lessons should be different, but I think the lessons should be the same. Um, America, all Americans need to tell the story of these massacres, these racialized conflagrations that happened all over our history. And our responses to that will be different, right? I've got to tell that story to my sons and to my daughter so they know not to rely on these systems to take care of them. And their friends who are white, uh, uh, who grow up in families that are well-resourced need to learn that story so they don't get too excited about the fact that they have more than their black counterparts because they know that it may have come from a place um, that wasn't um, the most respectable. Uh, and so they've got to react to that. So they don't think they're any better than my black children, right? And so, yeah, we need to tell the same story, uh, but we're always going to tell it from different angles and we will take different lessons from it. We're in a, a screw face, um, <laughs> screw face era where people no longer respect nor trust institutions across the board. And especially, I think a lot of black institutions that have gotten a lot of George Floyd guilt money from corporations this past year, they're not, they're not trusted to actually deliver the goods to the people that they say they serve. And, and rightfully so, you know, we've had 50 years to watch uh, many of these organizations sit on their hands and, you know, platitudes and uh, annual conferences and dinners and things raise money, but our conditions have been, you know, the wealth gap is greater before the pandemic, the health disparities greater, you know, the, the home ownership less, you know, before the pandemic, I don't know what the next 10 years are going to look like after this pandemic. Cause that's when we really see the fallout from this. How do we build trust or should we should, do we need institutional organizations anymore? Yeah, I think we do. I think there's a value in institutions. Uh, there's you know, one who says that um, movements, all movements need inspiring ideas, activated individuals and strong institutions. You need all three uh, to advance what King would talk about as a radical revolution of values, right? You, you can't just have an uprising in a moment, but you actually have to reform institutions. And I think we need them. Uh, part of what we need, though, is we need to go back. I really appreciate the language from last year from Eddie Glaude, um, where he was really leaning in uh, with, with Jimmy Baldwin and said we need to do our first works over. Uh, part of what has happened is we've gotten too far established and too far from our origins. I can say this about all institutions because as a minister, I can say this about the church. The first century church that you see spoken about in the Bible is not the church that we live in today. It is not the post-Constantinian um, post church um, uh, where you now have the church aligned with the state. Institutions become aligned with the mainstream in the interest of their survival. So part of what we have to do is we have to go back to the very beginning, right? So if I talk about the origin story of the Children's Defense Fund, then I have to remember that much of that has to do with the bloated bellies of black children in the Delta, Mississippi. 
And I can't come by this way of leading this institution from a DC perspective alone. I have to go back and spend time in the states where we have offices. I got to remember what I experienced here in the middle of the country in St. Louis. And I have to have, as I do always, the vision of a Mike Brown laying in the middle of the street, deeply cemented in my heart and in my mind to know what sends me forth into this work, right? I have to remember my own story uh, of a big brother cut down from community violence and gun violence, from drug turf battles in the streets in my own upbringing to bring that earnestly to the work. And so while I was raised in the era of code switching and knowing how to go along and get along and how to present in certain environments and others, I have to be real about the pain if I'm really gonna implement a program that means something. And so part of what our institutions have to do is to make sure that we are investing some of the resources from this new moment into organizing, into listening, into lifting up the stories of the people who put us to work in the very first place. Uh, because if we don't, then we will fail our people in as much as America has failed our institutions and our movements. How much of, how important is it for our institutions that we have some modicum of influence on to be accountability, to not necessarily the accountability police, but to hold other people who've made these pledges, be they government, be they, um, be they the private sector, who is holding these individuals and organizations accountable for what they say they have done? Yeah, one of the other hats that I wear um, is as the board chair for a group called the National Committee for Responsive Philanthropy. And what NCRP does is, it's a watchdog organization, it's a yep. philanthropy serving watchdog organization that lays out and partners with philanthropy to say, these are the best practices, right? You, you want to invest in community-engaged solutions. You want to invest in organizations that are led by, by people of color, people affected by women. You want to make sure that you're giving people general operating support so that people are closer to the problem can actually come up with the solutions uh, and to hold out accountability for these things. So there are groups like NTRP, like Candid, um, philanthropy serving organizations that are doing some of this work. But we also have to be very clear and hold that, be a little humble about the fact that some of these announcements uh, were made without a great degree of specificity at all. Um, and, uh, and so part of what we needed to be careful about, and some of us were claiming it and ringing the bell in the moment, is um, let's not get too much credit uh, for announcements uh, without deliverables. Um, let's hear how these things actually get rolled out, and let's pay attention to how people, who the initial partners are uh, with these investments. Um, so there are philanthropy serving organizations, the Association of Black Foundation Executives, uh, I'll, I'll say very specifically, name check um, that organization, because they began to lay out principles uh, for how these uh, large institutions should invest, laid out a philanthropic agenda for Black communities, because in the moment where Black people are being harmed, it's important that resources go to Black people. Um, and that's not exactly the same as going to BIPOC communities. Um, so, um, so ABFI, the Association of Black Foundation Executives, laid out an entire agenda and call to action for how those funds should be uh, invested uh, to advance the Black community. Uh, and I encourage people to go to ABFI's website at ABFI.org to check that out uh, and to be in conversation with them about how that accountability is happening. 
um, because I think that is the place where the moral authority for this moment of investment uh, really lies. It's about philanthropy to advance Black communities. You need to ask the Black professionals in philanthropy. I love that. Uh, spell AFI. Spell is A. A B F E. The Association of Black Foundation Executives, uh, and uh, and I, of which I'm a, I'm a personal member. I spent my last ten years before coming to CDF uh, as a, as a Black Foundation Executive. I found a home in that organization, and then also NCRP, the National Committee for Responsive Philanthropy. Um, right. We're going to invite them on the show. Uh, how yes. can we help? How can uh, this community of of engaged, amazing, intelligent? Uh, loving people, how can they help the Children's Defense Fund in 2021? First and foremost, I mean, in the light of this conversation and the spirit of this conversation, uh, I want people to come, come go to childrensdefense.org, follow us on Twitter, at Child Defender, uh, so that you know what we're doing and you can hold us accountable to it. Speak to us through those platforms. One of the things I'm really excited about uh, at the CDF website now is that there's a place for people to tell us stories, uh, to talk to us about how these policy issues impact their lives. Um, how would a child tax credit impact your life? Because those are the stories we wanna be telling. I, I'm, I'm glad um, to, uh, to talk about the statistics of 23 million people being uh, impacted, um, one in seven children, but I wanna talk about stories while I talk about statistics. So we wanna invite people to tell us their stories about how children in their lives are being impacted. Uh, and that means in order to tell us a story, that means you got to do the number one thing I really want people to do is listen to children. Um, ask them how the pandemic is harming and hurting them. I, mm -hmm. I tell people, even if your child can't speak, they can answer that first question you ever asked a child, where does it hurt? They can point. They can tell you whether they're having physical responses or whether they're having emotional or mental responses to this pandemic because our situational assessment needs to start with them and then our programmatic and policy agendas need to come out from them and so that's why i talk much more right now about the ten thousand children who are going to be in freedom schools this summer because i is realize that all I over is that all over the country all over the country that's 25 states um that's 68 cities where we're going to be running these freedom schools with local mm -hmm. partners um and people can go to our website and see where those are for their communities and who the partners are um, because our children need this input Absolutely. right now. We know they were displaced from schools. They need social connection. Um, they need uh, additional investment. And that's where we're critically informed. And the other thing I'll ask people to do is contact your congressperson and tell them that the child tax credit should be permanent. permanent. We, we appreciate the expansion, but we think it should be permanent. We should not be four years from now trying to figure out whether we care about our kids again to <laughs> see whether we get it extended. Um, that, so we're glad to be fighting for permanence right now. That is super powerful. It is super helpful, especially people, children, asking your children how they're doing. We don't do that enough. And I think a lot of parents are afraid of the answer, but you have to, you know, your children, you know, you talk about empowerment and agency, give them their voice, ask them their opinion, ask them how they feel so that they can, you know, that, that happens to black people all the time. People assume 
And then they they make programs without ever asking us what we need. And we need different things in different places. So there's no monolithic one size fit all uh, kind of solution for the ailments. As Drew was pointing out, poverty, you you were pointing out poverty is complicated. It's not just, oh, I don't have money. It's a domino effect that lands in different places for different people. And uh, I, I think this is so powerful. And I want to thank you. You have an open seat here and we will be following up. We're going to follow up. We're going to follow you at Rev, Rev Dr. Starsky, R-E-V-D-R Starsky on the Twitters. Also Child Defender and Children'sDefense.org. Check them out. Find out where the, the Freedom Schools are because they're amazing. And please tell uh, the great Marion Wright Edelman we said hello because she is a powerhouse. Thank you for being Thank here you. today. Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to The Karen Hunter Show live every Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. East on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.